I don't know how many people are cooking, but we know what farmers markets look like compared to what they looked like 20 years ago. We know what supermarkets looked like. That stuff is encouraging. I think that it's going to be easier and easier for people to get better and better ingredients. You know, whether Amazon winds up being on the right side of that or the wrong side of that, I don't know. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. On today's show, we have Mark Bittman, who's a very prolific cookbook writer. His most recent book is How to Grill Everything. And later on in the show, we'll be talking to Therese Nelson, who's a taste cook in resident. But first of all, Matt, what did you and Mark talk about? Wow, Mark Bittman. Uh, Mark has a lot of opinions, and I love that he and I had this pretty frank conversation um, in front of a crowd at Books Are Magic. Uh, he talked about how he walked into the New Haven Advocate and basically told them that their current food critic was terrible and he should be the critic. He later got the job. That takes guts. I've never done that before. Yeah, he, he got the job. And then he later would write for the Washington Post and New York Times, write his minimalist column, and uh, write his series of How to Cook Everything cookbooks that have sold millions and millions of copies. He also admits that he still has terrible knife skills. Wow, that really surprises me. It's surprising. It's honest. Uh, I think we all kind of have terrible knife skills compared to the chefs, but he says that really it does not matter, and I think that's why I like Mark. He's pretty honest. Here's Mark talking to Matt at Books Are Magic in Brooklyn. My first question is, do you read the comments? I mean that only because you put yourself out there quite often. You wrote a column for years in New York Times, a home cooking column, but then you transitioned to the op-ed page, which had you writing about all sorts of topics, food policy, et cetera. So do you read the comments? Well, you know, it's funny. When I started writing, comments came in envelopes. Um, <laughs> and, you, you know, a piece of mail would arrive either at the paper or at my, occasionally at my house and you'd look at it, and once in a while, you know, and it, wouldn't, it wasn't like hundreds of week, it, it, hundreds a week. It was like three a week or seven or whatever, and it was manageable. And you look at them, and sometimes they're interesting. And once in a while, you'd write back, and that was that. Um, I mean, the short answer is no. When it okay. became an online thing, it became impossible. And you know, we we all know about um, the potential for rudeness and cruelty online and I um, if you have a thin skin you know you can read 99 things that say you're the greatest and you read one thing that says you suck and that's the one you remember so yeah I can't read everything but that you, everybody thinks about no of course you can so I want to talk about your start in food uh, writing I think it was kind of shocking to me when I found out your history um, you basically you walked into the New Haven Advocate and you said a New Haven advocate, you need a new restaurant reviewer because your restaurant reviewer is not very good. That's not a paraphrase. It's pretty accurate, right? No, it's totally true. <laughs> that is the truth. Um, I was in a karate class with a guy named Chris Angerman. That's and, awesome. Um, <laughs> Cobra Kai style, like in the 80s? like Shotokan karate. Okay. And Chris was a graduate student at, at Yale. I had nothing to do with Yale. I just lived in New Haven. And Chris was um, doing theater reviews for the weekly paper. And I said, how did you get that gig? And he said, oh, just go up there and ask for George DiStefano. And I mean, that's what it was like. 
And I went in and I said, I want to see George DiStefano. And they said, third door on the right. Such was security in 1980. And George said, what do you want? And I I did say that. Um, And he said, well, write me a write me something and we'll see. And I went home and long-handed three or four versions of this piece that I had in mind and then I typed it up and I brought it in and then I became, you know, for $50 a week, less expenses, the New Haven Advocates Restaurant Reviewer. For a while. And then you kind of evolved into a recipe writer because I remember you telling me you you were eating pesto and doing a story about pesto and there's like five... What's that? You're amazing. I just remember. I mean, this is a story stuck with me. Like, how do you, you – you were reviewing pesto, and then you were like, there's five chefs in my town who make pesto, and I can do it better. Well, that's not exactly accurate, but – Pretty close. Close enough, yeah. No, I was at this restaurant, and really I was getting paid $50 a week, and I had to pay for the meals. So I think part of my uh, motivation was financial. Like, if I could not pay for the meals, then I could make $50 a week. Um But so we went to this restaurant and the pesto was like terrible. And so I wrote this piece that said, we went to this restaurant. Here's what we ate. Wasn't very good. Here's how you could do it at home. It'll be better. (laughs) And then I evolved it into a A recipe column. Yeah. Well, you evolved into a career (laughs) kind of. I think you you have taken that, you've channeled that I can do a better uh, idea and you've done it for many different cuisines. Um, So I think that's really interesting that you were able to – because you weren't really a, a home cook. I mean, you were cooking for your family. You weren't trained, right? You were, you were just cooking a lot for your family. No, I used to say until until about 95, I would say I've had no formal training. And it was true. I took a cooking class um, in New Haven. That was the kind of cooking class anybody might take. And, and that was fun. But it certainly wasn't arduous training. I still have terrible knife skills. Um and I, Most people have terrible knife skills yeah, unless they do I don't it. think it matters that much. I've always wanted to do a kind of demo where you'd be like someone with great knife skills and someone with terrible knife skills, and they cook exactly the same dish, and the person with great knife skills finishes 90 seconds earlier than the person with terrible knife skills. Anyway. So what makes a Mark Bittman recipe? <sighs> like, seriously, I want to segue this because I think you – have this, I mean, The Matrix, for example, one of your last books is like very limited ingredients and it's all about cooking intuitively. Well, I think part of it was that, so I didn't have any training and I was just cooking from cookbooks. Um, and I did have these kids and I did work. Um, and so every day it, I would go shopping. I spent a lot of time in fish stores because I was really obsessed with fish. But I would go shopping most days and I'd come home and I would have no idea what I was going to make. And then I would sit there with these cookbooks in a little semicircle and look up kind of the same recipe in each cookbook and say, okay, I can do that. So I guess at this point I was kind of advanced. But then there was never enough time, so I just do the simplest version of everything that I could imagine. Um, but it was all about repetition. You were cooking a lot at home and that's how you got like your chops, right? You were kind of forcing I mean, yourself. to the extent I have chops, yeah. yeah. I mean, yes, I cooked at home every night or most most nights. I, I worked at home, so I cooked lunch most days also. Um, and it, it was a sort of autodidact kind of thing. I mean, I didn't 
as I said, I used to say I had no training, and then I and then I cooked every week for two years with Jean Georges von Gerst, and so that I think yeah. counts as training. That was when you were working on a book with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that I learned, I learned stuff I would maybe never have figured out myself, or maybe I would have eventually. But um, you wrote one of your first books was about seafood and, and fish cookery, and it's still you say it still sells quite well. I mean. What what draws you to to that topic, like cooking with seafood? Was my first book, Fish, yeah. and um, that's it's what fish. it's called, Fish. I think many people will say that their first book was, in a way, their their baby because it, in a way, it took fish it took me twelve years to write Fish because I was writing about fish from the beginning, and I did a series about fish for the Washington Post, and I went out on boats, and I, as I said, I hung out in New Haven and back in the day when it was a real, um, it was a great town for fish retail. I could talk about that for a long time. I won't. Um, but I knew a lot about it and I really loved the topic and I wanted to write about it. It took a long time to sell that book and mm -hmm. a long time to write it. And it did well. And that really is what launched That sent me. you on your way and yeah. you started collaborating with chefs and you started really, you started working at Cook's as well. I mean, well, fish came out and won a couple of awards and, um, then I was asked to do how to cook everything and we didn't call it that then. But mm. so that was one sort of direction at the same time, the times asked me if I wanted a weekly column, which obviously no one says no to that. Mm. And Were you I, nervous <laughs> to take on a weekly column for the New York times? I, I don't, mean, I don't, you're, I'm you're... nervous now about the work <laughs> that I'm doing. I think I was too dumb to be nervous then, or it's just right. like, too excited. I mean, how, I, there was no time to be nervous. So it was really an amazing thing. And now the work that I'm doing, now that I'm like quasi successful and known and all of that, I feel like in a way there's more to lose. And the work I do um, is also in a way more challenging. So um, I, honestly, I'm nervous now. I'm not nervous at this moment. But. No, I, I, you seem pretty chill on the stage. But um, but talking, I mean, I wanted to talk to you about this Haiti piece you wrote for New York Magazine because there was some backlash to that story just about the usage of some words. And, and do you feel like that backlash was deserved? I mean, does, is that part of this nervous of what you're doing now? No, I'm nervous about what I'm doing now because I'm worried that I'm not going to do a good enough job, which is always what drives you to do a good enough job. So... Yeah, um, I just thought that it was an interesting piece because you used the word peasants, and like there was like some it was like a semantic conversation about using the usage of peasants. Yeah, I don't think it's a major conversation. Yeah. Peasants call themselves peasants, right, right. and peasant organizations call themselves right. peasant organizations. So the fact that people don't all know that is just an educational thing. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, just like people picking apart the language. Do you think it's has it changed over the course of the past? Like five years, ten years, the way that words and food writing have been picked apart. There's a lot of, I mean, food writing right now is is just becomes it's more controversial than ever. It feels like. I mean, I think you probably know more about that than I do, but um, you know, I think I think the insistence that that new voices be heard is fabulous. I think the. Um, the claims and accusations about cultural appropriation are interesting, sometimes right, sometimes yeah. not. I think you have to look at things on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, 
you know, I think the open conversation is a terrific thing. So. I agree. And I think that that's where we're at with Twitter right now. It's like kind of an open conversation about these topics for good or for bad. Right. Well, I'm not looking at Twitter anymore. Either, but yeah, <laughs> you've retired from Twitter. I've really retired. Yeah, it's that's a, totally a one way street for me. I don't. Uh, I really don't look at it. Yeah, I I agree. I I have to say that it's a good thing that you're not like in the trenches of Twitter. <laughs> I was like witnessing a Twitter attack today of a, of a prominent writer, and I just felt you should be just writing. Don't like say the fuck off Twitter and just write like essays and write great work. But you were in Haiti because you were researching a future book project about global foodways, and I wanted to hear a little bit about that. But I also wanted to find out if um, if you're going to travel around the world and explore global foodways, um, what about America? The book I'm working on is, I say it's a history of food and humanity um, and how they've interacted. Right now I'm working on the history part, so I don't think travel's that essential. Um, you know, you're not going to go to Sumer and find out anything, or Rome particularly. So um, we'll see what happens when I get into the the present and the future part of the book, how much traveling I'm going to do and where I'm going to go. I want I'd like to finish this book being hopeful and maybe even optimistic. Um, so anywhere that'll make me feel that yeah. way, I'm glad to go. Frankly, and I, you know, I'll say this for the record, but I'm not sure I'm right. So I say it with some hesitation. I think the United States is going to be increasingly isolated um, in the way that we raise and market and sell um, food and that other countries are going to do a better job of it more quickly than we will. And that, um, and that more interesting things are going to happen in places like India and Haiti than are happening here right what's now. A, what's our, what's slows America down then? What's, what's causing this the hegemony of industrial yeah. agriculture? Right. It's really simple. Yeah. I mean, it's you can, how much good food can you produce if you are producing mostly corn and soybeans. Right. It's it's just the diversity of crops that we talk about this a lot and write about it. Like we just don't have that need because we can it's a global food way for us, right? We just can't Right. Well, I mean it's been two hundred years or four hundred, depending on how you're counting, that farming has moved in this direction of growing crops for sale as opposed to growing crops to, to eat. So if you said if someone said, what should a food system look like, you might say it should be a system that grows, grows food to nourish people and maybe do as little damage as possible along the way. And that is not what our food system is. Our food system is designed to make profits and ignore everything else. Um, I think other countries are more capable of seeing that and changing that and moving in a different direction than we are because we are so strongly dominated by you know, the companies that basically stock prices. that. Yeah, and stock prices and well, earning yeah. reports. But what are you seeing in India? I'm really fascinated. That that excites you, that makes that you want to report this book that American readers can learn from our society. There's a state in India called Andhra Pradesh that's actively supporting sustainable farming. So costs for those farmers are down. They say yields are up. And farmer suicide rates, which is a big deal in India and in the United States for that matter, are falling. So it's a, it's a, it's a thing that's going to work and it's, um, it's something that people are going to pay attention to. What did you eat in India? That was absolutely delicious that you just the coolest can't... thing. Yeah. yeah. I came back swearing I was going to write about this, but I didn't. The coolest thing is this 
is a ch- a chili that's um, cured in salt and buttermilk for like days and then deep fried. That was really good, like a poblano kind of yeah. chili, like not a super hot chili, but a really no. flavorful chili. It's like delicious. I know it's like not a dish, right? It's no. a chili, but it was that. I mean, I've eaten, I've been to yeah. India before. Uh-huh. There wasn't a lot that was new. That was new. That's I was, cool. I was in the south. I hadn't been in the uh-huh. south before, so. So the topic of this book is grilling. Like, like, why, why, why write this? I mean, it's a beautiful book. There's, I mean, two hundred how many recipes? Yeah, two hundred how many, something like that. Yeah, like about grilling. Like, why was this book needed? Well, you know, that's a very tricky question because yeah. it's not clear that it was needed. But um, <laughs> publisher thought so. <laughs> publisher thought so. I thought so. You know, I actually am not that big a fan of technique-oriented cookbooks, but grilling is a special case because grilling's fun and people like it. Maybe because in the eastern half of the country, it's really seasonal. Yeah, you we have like four months to do it. So yeah. I do remember when I first moved to New Haven and I had a grill on a tiny little porch and would run outside and grill in the winter. Hmm. But for the most part, yeah. you know, it's a seasonal thing. It's a fun thing. Ingredients are at their peak. Yeah. For the most part, it's dead simple. Um, it's gotten easier. It's gotten easier to do it well. Um, so I think you know I was thinking about because this is like my twentieth book, and well, this is a bit tangential, but it's relevant. I was watching Gone with the Wind, and I was thinking, Gone the distance in time between Gone with the Wind and the Civil War is the same as the distance in time between Gone with the Wind and now. And when you watch it. You're not watching a movie about the Civil War. You're watching a movie about 1939, which is when it was made. And I think, you know, when you look at cookbooks, you th- and we were talking about older cookbooks yeah. before and how much fun they can be. We're working on the third edition of How to Cook Everything. It's been 20 years since How to Cook Everything was published and 25 since I started writing it. And, like, so much stuff has changed. And, you know, if you take your personality your experience, your time, and your place, any book you write is going to be different than it would have been 10 years ago, and it's certainly going to be different than it would be written by someone else. So, you know, I'm a person who's lucky enough to be able to publish cookbooks when he wants to, and um, I hadn't done a grilling book. Grilling books are popular. I've done a lot of grilling. I like it. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, you, I mean, you, and I think it's really good. So. No, it's a great book, and I wanted to touch on. It's interesting you talk about twenty years of how to cook anything. I want to just drill into that a little bit. What what's changed in twenty years? What's the most no- noticeable change in the way that we cook at home? Is it availability of, of groceries and products like Instacart? Is that changing? Is it is it like our we, we can get Urfa Bieber like just like at most grocery stores now and like spice rubs like Togarashi, or is it something else? No. It's I don't think that. it's any of that stuff. I think it's an evolution in the way people have, are thinking about food. And, 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 and I'm talking about people who take the time to do home cooking from scratch, which is obviously a minority of people in the United States. And an even smaller minority is the people who buy cookbooks and pay attention to that. But the I think the availability of good ingredients, um, especially but not exclusively in in big cities – um, I think the knowledge base of um, our understanding of other cuisines, our understanding about how food is around the world, I think 
also our understanding of, I don't know if I want to call it nutrition, but real food versus junk. So um, the fact that we understand much better what's good for us and what's not so good for us, all of that has changed in 20, 25 years. It's changed education. A lot. I mean, you're, think, you're talking about education. 25 years ago, I was 40, and the people who were young cooks then are now 45. Um, and we have like this whole shift of population. And, and um, you know, I, I do think that there are more people my age cooking than there were back then, but there are a lot more people, young people cooking than there were back then. So that That's cooking awesome. was really at its low when I started writing about food. 1980 was like the depths. See, I, I fully agree. I think young people are cooking more, but there are a lot of stats out there that say that home cooking is becoming less and less popular. Is, I, I mean, is it just the way the data is being skewed? I don't know. I don't know what, I don't yeah. know what the stats are, and I don't know that I believe them, I but know. anecdotally, yes. I know that, you know... Instagram. I mean, you just look at people cooking on, like, so, like you see people cooking. Like, well, here's you know. the other thing. There's 330 or 350 million people in this country. Yeah. It doesn't take a big percentage of that to be a lot of people. 1% yeah. of that is yeah. 3 million plus right. people. So if you, have, if you have a couple of hundred thousand people paying attention to what you're doing in this country, you're, mm -hmm. you have some kind of impact. If you have a couple million, yeah. which is not that hard, you have real impact. Real. So I don't know how many people are cooking, but we know what farmer's markets look like compared to what they looked like 20 years ago. We know what supermarkets look like um, compared to what they look like. And, and those, that stuff is encouraging. I think that it's going to be easier and easier for people to get better and better ingredients. Um, you know, whether Amazon winds up being on the right side of that or the wrong side of that, I don't know. But, you know, the fact that, you know, I live in a, I now live in a town 60 miles from here that's uh, the population is under 10,000 and we have an awesome farmer's market mm -hmm. every Saturday. So we can get good stuff in a place that, you know, 20 years ago, I mean, if you just relied on the supermarket, mm -hmm. even now you'd be pretty sad, okay. but, and that's true. You know, that's true everywhere. Mm -hmm. I got made fun of probably correctly for, a blog post or something about Des Moines where I was a couple of years ago because I was like, oh, gee whiz, you can get good food in Des Moines. And the people in Des Moines were like, <laughs> Those you know statements, what? yeah. <laughs> They're not going to play well in Des Moines, no. <laughs> but, but the fact is, you know, you can get good food pretty much anywhere now. Yeah. You know, there are parts of the country you have to drive 50 miles to do it. But um, that wasn't the case 20 years ago. But let's just talk a little bit about shopping, though. Isn't shopping just difficult for most people? The planning, the meal planning, getting the right ingredients into your home. There's a number of people in the United States who want to make cooking a priority, want to make cooking for themselves and their families and their friends an important thing. And those people, for the most part, don't complain about shopping, about finding the ingredients, about the time it takes because they've prioritized it. And what they're prioritizing it instead of is an interesting question that's a societal question that doesn't have that much to do um, with food. We all have 24 hours in a day, and some people are forced to work 20 of them. And if those people don't have the time to cook, I, I get it. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I mean some people don't work that hard and don't cook, and that's a question of what your priorities are. I mean, are. is it cultural currency? Is cooking – has is it prized more as like – 
like instead of uh, talking about the film they saw at the at the movie theater, they're talking about the the pro- their lasagna project they worked on over the weekend. Yeah, well, you're obsessed with lasagna, so um, about that. look, it's different for different people. It's not. I don't have any answers to yeah. that kind of question that anyone else doesn't have. We yeah. all have our own experiences. We all have our own friends. We all. Yeah think that there's different explanations for these things. I don't have the key. If I could figure out how to double the number of people who cooked in the United States, mm-hmm. believe me, I'd do it out of self-interest and that of, for altruistic, altruistic purposes. Yeah. But I don't. I don't know what makes people cook versus what the... I don't even know what made me cook versus why I didn't start cooking. I was thinking well, about that. Well, you had a fa- young family. I mean, you needed to... Yeah, get, but, you know, no. we could have done takeout. We lived in New Haven. Wasn't very good, though, probably, right? Awesome pizza. Oh, yeah, right. But you can't live on pizza, like, six days a week. People yeah. eat a lot of pizza. Yeah, true. All right, I got one more question. I, I love... I was just, like, paging through the book, and I saw, like, grilled polenta and sour cream and ikora. I saw hot smoked fish with bourbon marinade. I, I saw chicken thighs with fish sauce. It's really a global palate i mean what what are some of the recipes that would surprise folks the most in terms of grilled well the, the grilled desserts are pretty surprising That's right. um and grilled breads which i think you know i've been doing for a long time and it's obviously nothing i invented um you named you named some of the farther out ones i you know i think there's a lot of very obvious very basic stuff in the book which i'm that's a that's a trademark of how to cook everything because in the original how to cook everything had all these recipes for obscure things and just before publication we took them out and we put in popcorn and hamburgers and tuna fish sandwiches and grilled cheese and people thanked me for that so you know i i think there's this range of stuff that goes from the simplest to some wacky things and they're they're kind of all Mine. Um, so you either like it or you don't, yeah, but- I guess. But but that's what it is. And and I think, you know, in, in a way, what's important about grilling right now is that people know that grilling over a live fire, grilling over lump charcoal is really good. Grilling over gas is actually now acceptable, and people think, oh yeah, this is pretty easy. There's like a bunch of stuff that's changed, and. Um, Smoking, right? Yeah. Home smokers. Home smoke, and home smokers, but also a gas grill where you throw a few branches of wood on it and you get smoke that way. I mean, I, I'm actually, in a way, as opposed to individual recipes, more excited about the kind of making, making grilling even more accessible than it is now. Uh, I'm going to close. Thanks, Mark. Here's Matt talking to Taste resident Therese Nelson about hot sauce, George Washington Carver, and her website, Black Culinary History. Therese Nelson, you're here on the Taste Podcast. Yes, Welcome. very excited. And you're the second, you're in our second wave of, of our yep. Taste Residency Program. We're, we're so honored to have you. So excited to be doing it. You're the founder of Black Culinary History, yeah. which is a, a website. Um, it is kind of like your... A mission statement about about the history of Black Foodways, Absolutely. about where Black Foodways, the mission statement being where your Black Foodways should be going. Mm-hmm. And you're looked upon by the industry, members of the media, members of the culinary community. Do you feel that way? <laughs> I mean, I hear it sometimes and I appreciate it, but I think 
because my work is in such a bubble from myself, I don't really see the Like, for so long, it was just this kind of catharsis. Like, I was looking for something. I was looking for identity, looking for how to contextualize the work I was committing my life to. And I didn't think, I didn't really understand that other folks were consuming it. You know what I mean? Like, I put it out into the world so that I get something back and kind of be fed. But I didn't really think about other people's, yeah. like, consumption of it. Tell me about what you're putting out because I think you you publish in bursts it seems. It, it's not like a blog where it's every day but you write essays. So tell me how did you find found black culinary history and what do you like to do with it? What do you like to write about specifically? So I was in my mid-20s. I was at sort of the first major wave of decision making you making your career like after culinary school your first couple jobs you kind of get into a place where you're sussing out what your career is going to be or where the next phase of it is going to be. And I was making major life changes, making the first real adult decisions I was I was having to be asked to make of myself. And it just seemed that I wasn't sure the why of mm-hmm. it anymore. Like, I, culinary school is expensive and you spend a lot of time training. But I wasn't sure about all of those amazing reasons why I went in the first place. I hadn't read Edna Lewis's taste in five years at that point. And it just seemed strange to me that all of these people that I was admiring um, from a historical standpoint, I wasn't connecting to in my work. And I mean, you working for other people, of course their vision is what is the center of your day-to-day life, but there seemed to be just a missing piece for me. So I just sent this little letter out. To like, It started out with 10 people. It started it was, as a newsletter. It really did. It was yeah. I, I was interested in folks ahead of me career-wise about what their, how you contextualize responsibility to this work. You're doing this thing that is artistic and wonderful and you are putting out your your heart and soul every day, but yeah. what is that responsibility? What is what is the impact that you what, that your work is gonna sort of give to the culinary world? And it was this little thing since out to chefs I knew mm-hmm. as folks. What did you write? Like, was it a story? Was it, it an essay? It was, Do you remember the first post? What was it called? It was this. It was I called it a manifesto. It was just like it was. <laughs> so the, you were cons- for real? Like that was like oh, absolutely the manifesto. The, That's the naivete of a twenty five year old of like you know. You know, please, uh, Ty Richards, please, you know, all of the chefs that I admire, what are we doing here? Like, what does this work really mean? What, I need some insight. And it was, it just grew in scope. Like, it was that little group of folks sent that to a bunch of other folks and started, we had, back in the day, Ming.com was uh-huh. this, um, um, sort of right when Facebook was starting, but it's like an alternative to Facebook. Yep. We could create smaller communities. It's a social network. Yeah. yeah um, started there and, Writers and I got to start meeting a lot of folks that I was interested in. So, so h- tell me, how has it grown? Because I know it's really expanded. Yeah, it's it's basically grown through con- personal connection. Like the site for me, like I like you said, I don't really write a ton on it because I'm busy. I work. I mean, I, I work a eighty hour culinary life. You're a working um, chef. Yeah, you're a caterer. Yep, and mostly private chef work, but yeah. absolutely, absolutely some small catering, and it just felt like. I wanted the site to be a respite from the rest of the culinary world. If I was, I thought about if I was 18 in culinary school or aspiring to come to this work and I didn't have any sense of inspiration, right? And I was on YouTube already or if I was already online or using social media in a way that young people kind of consume it. Or even working chefs, people consume media through social, like their phone. And I wanted a place that was just this kind of living, breathing resource. And I was so impressed with the words that you'd written, some of the essays on the mm-hmm. site. And I think 
<clears throat> that drew me to you when we were figuring out who our residents would be yeah. for, for our taste residency. So I was so flattered that you that you accepted the invitation because I was like, we're going to work. We're going to actually yeah. do a lot of work. And I knew you were busy with the 80-hour work week. But I'm, that's one of the things I so appreciate about this residency idea in, at all is that because there's so many conversations being had about so, – I, I don't know if I'm exhausted about diversity conversations, but cool. I'm definitely interested in this idea about expanding narrative and voices getting opportunities to tell stories, right? And I think that what you do and what I'm so excited about and appreciative of is this idea that chefs don't have a lot of time, but we have stories. And the way you put your training, the way you sort of try and make yourself better is always in the kitchen. But we need to have spaces to be able to learn more in terms of writing, all these other spaces that you would be more effective in telling your stories to get the time to really breathe and think. And that's what we wanted to provide. And I think I'm going to pick up on what you said about kind of being a little exhausted with the diversity conversation, also with maybe the the hot takes about appropriation. (laughs) I think when we started talking about the stories you'd be writing for Taste, Mm -hmm. we really wanted it to be topical. We wanted it to be based around history. We wanted it to be based around recipes and Mm -hmm. cooking. So we've published, at the time of this recording, two stories and we're working on our third. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the first one, which um, (laughs) I thought you you came up with a great title, My Crush (laughs) on George Washington Carver. Tell us about George Washington Carver. How how is is he influential to you as a chef, as an African-American journalist, and also – you know, we're taught in school. I went to school in West Michigan. We're taught he's the guy who invented peanut peanuts, and there's something associated with peanuts. But there's so much more to George Washington Carver. Absolutely. So one of my biggest goals in this work is to sort of highlight the idea that you are an autonomous person. You have the absolute power in your own person to be as dope and as brilliant and as just magical as you want to be. And for me, Carver has always been this magical creature. He was literally enslaved at birth. He literally had every possible barrier to success in his way. But through, like, really charming and interesting, so the the world conspired to make him amazing. He was an artist. He was a botanist. He was... What his story would look like if he was a different sort of person is exponential. But he decided to go to Tuskegee in his little lab, do his work, and it was still amazing. It's still impactful. So the let's world. talk about what he did at Tuskegee University as as both a, a thought leader and as a researcher, but then later on as a, a leader in the school and as a member of the administration. I, I think about Booker T. Washington. What would you have thought? Like were you trying to collect the trying to collect like the coolest, dopest people you know at that moment to teach these young people in a new way. Who what kind of minds would you need? And it would takes a car, it takes a George Washington Carver. And so he came there thinking about farming, thinking about the fact that you had these formerly enslaved people who need to find a way to make a living, make a life for themselves. And they were gonna do it through farming. And if he could find a way to make that work easier, make it more marketable, that he absolutely was going to do that. And it was a mission statement. It was like it was his manifesto. And it translated into peanuts and um, sweet potatoes, but it also was derivative products. You're talking about getting to a place where he's getting to the, the height of his, absolutely, the height of his work right around World War II. Of course, 
absolutely you need a mind like his in a place like that that does not have any constraints on thought and innovation. And he changed the game. So he was teaching his students to to grow peanuts and and sweet potatoes, not just for culinary purposes, but for natural uh, like uh, fuel, like alternative fuels. So his goal was to to make people money, right? Absolutely. To, to, to give sh- people the opportunity to to advance in America. Absolutely. As newly it, freed slaves, essentially. And for my, my own love of him, had always thought of him in the food sphere because of the peanuts and, and um, sweet potatoes. But, like, he thought about the idea that you had to connect with the consumer. You had to connect with the person who was going to be consuming whatever you were producing. So how do you do that? You teach them how to cook it. You teach them how to apply it in different ways. It was such a genius idea in a moment where I don't know that we had a real food conscience at that moment. Uh, so he wrote cookbooks. Absolutely. Which, I mean, we just published a book here uh, at Clarkson Potter, uh, a sweet potatoes cookbook. Okay. But he, like, created his own sweet potatoes yeah. cookbook in, like, 1930s. All kinds of syrups and all just I mean, not just straight-up recipes, but, like, like I don't know. It was just so weird, like so strange. It was this. This is research and development. This was at, in this very tiny school in this very particular place in the country. You would not think this kind of work was happening, but he was out here making, figuring out how to. Do you feel? Does he get the credit he deserves? I think he gets credit. I think that it's. I think that it's a marginal credit, right? Like it's a very particular kind of way to view a person's legacy. I think about it in the same way I think about the way we sort of kind of canonize like a Edna Lewis or even a Vernon Grows. And there's a sense of this person being larger in life and in a very particular crystallized moment. And I don't know if that's fair because it sort of discounts the humanity that was so huge and breathful and joyous and joyful. Like it's, I think that it sort of... It makes it smaller than it was. It makes, and I, that's what I wanted to get across in the story. Like, even in even after it, like, there's so many other books that I hadn't read about his life. They talk about all this work he did in Africa. And I'm getting into it now, but I think it encourages people. It makes I was hoping that it got people to think more broadly about someone you thought you knew. Let's move on to your next story, which <laughs> I think is my favorite. I love the Carver piece, but you wrote an essay called "Hot Sauce in My Veins." Mm-hmm. Um, And I'm going to quote you. um, On the black table, the pursuit of flavor is like a religion. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? And how does that uh, relate to hot sauce? So a lot of times in, I find in black culture, one, most of your your consumption of food, your dining habits are at home. The home cooking is where the most flavor is. And so this idea about you living a life at home that is, delicious and flavorful and amazing and you go out into the world and you try and dine and the food that you're consuming is not necessarily as delicious it's not necessarily as flavorful and so this idea about hot sauce and this sort of i was never really a hot sauce person but i I, so i got to be a better chef i started understanding the really magical properties the hot sauce brings both the the heat from the conception, but yes. also the flavor it imparts. The acidity, the how, like, acidity, right? Um, you took you salt and uh, the one you had on um, salt, fat, acid, heat. Uh, heat. Yeah, yeah like mean good lord, yeah. Salt and acid are are seasoned. It's flavor, yeah. and all all of a sudden, that little bit of acidity, a little bit of lemon, a little bit of vinegar, all of a sudden. It, Changes the game, changes the entire dish, and I never thought about hot. One of the things I never thought about in terms of hot sauce on the table, like you go to soulful restaurants, is a very kind of stereotypical 
idea that in, in, in our food ways there's going to be hot sauce on the table. And thinking about it in that way makes it seem, I don't know, makes it seem like this is just some, we just douse everything in hot sauce because you want to cover. F- no, I mean, this is literal technical f- culinary reasoning. Like this is, you think about why our food is so delicious and so that, that kind of savory, del- like, I don't know, that, quality you can't quite put your finger on it's those elements that add that acidity add that that heat that you don't think about that all of a sudden it changes an entire dish what's a like what are some dishes that you feel hot sauce is essential to accenting the dish adding that acidity and adding that that salt that is really important so look at braised dishes like oxtail right yeah any any Caribbean restaurant you go to, any they're already gonna be seasoned. But that long braising, all those herbs and um, flavors that you add into a braising pot at the very beginning, are gonna still be there at the end and are delicious. But like think about like a gremolata, that's adding freshness, acidity to a, a this hearty sort of long process. So a little bit of hot sauce does the same thing. It adds a little bit of acidity, a little bit of extra salt, a little, and especially if it's a Caribbean hot sauce with fruit and all these yeah. other... I think it's brilliant. I mean, it's that little... I love it. I, lo- I mean, I think hot sauce, there's that, like, the kind of bro idea of, like, I want to have mm. this really hot sauce and film myself on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And I feel that's fine, that's cool, that's entertainment, but... It kind of undermines the history of hot yes. sauce a little bit. Yep. And it's so I think it, I don't know, it just, it takes something that is so, I think about it, the dopest hot sauces, you know, the process of figuring I mean, out that Cholula, balance. that's my dopest hot yes. sauce, to be honest. I love the, the hot sauce. But the balance that you have to sort of strike, that is not just a thrown together idea. This is a seriously crafted What's your dopest hot sauce that we can buy? I know you make hot sauce, but what's your dopest hot sauce that you can buy in the store? The t- the green Tabasco. Yeah. The um, I guess it's like tomatillos. Tomatillos, sir. Yeah, it's because yeah, yeah, right. I'm not a really high heat person, but I like that little bit of acidity and that like it's it feels to me like a more fresh approach to hot sauce than a lot of the other ones that are sort of simmer a long time and have a lot more like a direct heat. But it's I don't know. It's one of those things like I'll eggs or something else like I don't I don't I'm not feeling like my palate is completely blown out but it adds that little acidity yeah well I want to close with a question that sure. I, I really I want to <laughs> know so what is your dream book project we we publish a lot of books here at taste mm-hmm. and I ask everybody this what's your dream project so I hadn't thought so much about cookbooks right like I I think one of the pieces I'm working on for you guys is this idea about the responsibility of cookbooks and sort of how they tell narrative I've been thinking a lot about, because some of the smartest people I know can't quite put their finger on how to how to really clarify what the African-American table is, what that, that looks like in terms of a definition or an identity in American cooking. And there are lots of ways to approach it. I think um, Between Harlem and Heaven is a really good, beautiful attempt at showing what a modern take on black food waste could be. But I feel like using I, – I think history is important. I think that our memory our, our memories tend to be very short. And I think that if you look at all of these really particular archetypes throughout American food history, they give us the blueprint to sort of define what American food ways are through the lens of the black table. And so I look at a James Hemmings who is in – 
France, literally learning at the table, you know, at, at Versailles, brought so much of what we consider valuable in terms of European cooking back to America. Literally was running essentially a cooking cook, a cooking school at Monticello. You look at someone like Annie Northup, you look at someone like uh, Edna Lewis, like a Verdamay Grosner, and this a, a sort of unbroken chain of folks who have given us this wealth of knowledge. What would, their, what would the thought process look like if you took those those lessons further? What would the modern table look like through that? In the modern table, so going like, and having James Hemming, some of the things that he was teaching at Monticello, and having that how it applies in the to, modern day food ways. Right, what we cook now, how, how are those things informed by those lessons? I look at someone like Anna Lewis who taught us about seasonal local eating, who taught us about responsibility for what you grow. So the tenants that are applicable right now in most food activism spheres, teaching folks how to eat at every level has to be connected to that. And she taught us that yeah. 40 years ago. But how do you think of that broadly? How do you con- Context is critical to me. We think a lot of these conversations, we have a lot of books that come out are very nice and they have very beautiful pictures. But they don't really, <laughs> Nice, you're being generous. <laughs> but they don't, they don't put in context why you're doing the work you're doing. And I, that's part of it. But also, I think about the 18-year-olds who I meet weekly from schools like Johnson Wells and Ice and parents who want me to explain to their kids why you go to this work or why you would, why you would want to be a working chef. It's a very hard life. What's the answer? Well, if you don't, if you're not, if this isn't a matter of your bones, if you don't, if you can't see doing this every day of your life forever, this isn't the work for you. And I tell them that directly. But I also tell them if you can't, if you can't read Taste of Country Cooking and come back to me and talk to me about that book, I don't know that I can help you. There's nothing I can do for you if you don't have it in you to be excited and inspired by this blueprint that was left for you. So I'm interested in a cookbook in that in that space, but I'm really not, like I said, I'm not really, I'm interested in cookbooks, but I'm interested in the narrative. And I think that my most, my most passionate book idea is about how, like I think about someone like Jessica Harris, who Hound Hawk for me is foundational. It's just that, right? It is the foundation on which more work has to come. For me, Michael Twitty's book is the next layer of that. But I think that from a culinary point of, point of view, we have to. Well, you're absorb. the chef. Those right. two individuals are not chefs. Right. You're and the chef historian. You you could absolutely explore these topics in a very unique way. Absolutely. It's I I see so I have, I know so clearly this digestion of all of this Do you have a history. title for it yet? <sighs> Putting you on the spot a little bit. I think it should be something like progressive soul because I think mm-hmm. that soul food is important, but it's this idea about thinking past it or thinking through it to what we're cooking now. I think the work that's happening now around the country is amazing. Eduardo Jordan just killed it. Um, you know, somebody like Michelle Bailey is in Savannah standing her ground cooking low country cuisine beautifully. And there's so many examples around the country of chefs of color, uh, like sort of standing in the truth of their work and doing work that they don't have to be afraid of or sort of feel marginalized by. But I think that we need to contextualize how to that vocabulary, right? Like that, that how we do that bravely, but with respect for history. Yeah. Well, I hope I can read Progressive Soul sometime in the near future. Therese Nelson, thank you so much for joining the Taste Podcast, and thank you for being a Taste resident. I, I love working with you. I love being your editor, and 
this is just the beginning of, of a beautiful thing that you're, we're growing here at Taste. And also, Black Culinary History, blackculinaryhistory.com. Yeah. I see it. I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Take care. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. It's produced by Gabrielle Lewis. Our theme music is by Steve Raydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. Special thanks to the Books Are Magic family, Emma, Mike, and Michael. Confidence wine supplied by Smith & Vine. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening.